So hello and welcome back to this Small Animal Clinical Podcast Series brought to you from the Royal Veterinary College in London. My name is Shailen Jasani. Today on the podcast we're going to do something a little bit different by discussing a syndrome that has been reported in a number of dogs in the United Kingdom, uh, mostly in England, starting around the end of 2012. And today's date, by the way, is the 14th of April 2014. So this syndrome has been coined New Forest Syndrome by some people because many of the earliest cases uh, were in dogs that had been walked in the New Forest area in Hampshire. But people are now increasingly referring to it as Alabama rot. So to discuss this with me today, it's my great pleasure to welcome back to the podcast Dr. Roseanne Jepson. Roseanne, you'll remember, is a diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine and a lecturer in internal medicine at the RVC's Queen Mother Hospital for Animals. She is also part of the renal replacement therapy or dialysis team at the QMHA. So thanks very much, Roseanne, for agreeing to take part in this podcast and especially at such short notice. And you now officially are (laughs) the most frequent uh, expert on this podcast series, without a doubt. So thank you very much. (laughs) Um, So Roseanne, I thought we would start by explaining to the listeners... Um, what Alabama rot is, and then we'll go on and explain why it has become talked about uh, more recently in the United Kingdom. Um, Especially in the UK, Alabama rot is something that I guess people may kind of remember featuring on a differential diagnosis list back in vet school, but probably wouldn't have given it much thought after that, because to be honest, it was not something that was thought to occur in the UK. Um, and, you know, I guess the same applies to me, too, that until this recent phenomenon has emerged, I wouldn't have given another thought to Alabama rot. Um, so could you please explain a bit about what it is, where it's mostly been seen, and whether we know what the cause is? Sure. So um, the very earliest reports of this condition, which I think colloquially is called Alabama rot, dated from the late 1980s um, and came from racing greyhounds at the Alabama racetrack. Um, um, but subsequently, a number of cases in greyhounds was, were picked up across many of the states in America. Um, and there have been cases intermittently reported in other countries in the world too. Um, Perhaps the better or more specific term for the condition relates to the pathology that's going on within the kidneys, um, and hence the sort of more technical term for it would be idiopathic um, cutaneous renal glomerular vasculopathy. Um, One of the things which I think we'll go on to discuss further today is the fact that we don't really know exactly what is triggering this condition. Um, Up until the cases that have been seen more recently in the UK, um, it did seem to predominantly be greyhounds that were affected, although in the 1990s there was a case report of a Great Dane as well with very similar histopathological findings in the kidneys. Okay, good. And I think um, that's something we're going to mention a bit later as well about this sort of, what do we mean by a confirmed case? And it sounds like the histopathology is the is the thing really um so and do we have any idea about what the cause is for this pathology that has been identified in these dogs or not not at the moment um there have been um speculation um certainly in the early case reports relating to toxins that are potentially produced by certain bacteria e coli would be one of them but also potentially shigella campylobacter etc but these are very much not confirmed findings they were not confirmed back in the 1980s they were not confirmed in the great dane in the 1990s and there's been no confirmation in the recent cases either okay 
cool. Um, <clears throat> and so with that in mind, then, can you kind of fill us in a little bit about why this has become a topic of discussion um, in the UK in recent times? Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, the first cases um, were reported back in um, September, October 2012, um, and there was a, a small spate of dogs presenting um, with acute kidney injury um, down in the New Forest, which is where um, the sort of regional aspect initially started from. Um, those cases seemed to continue to trickle in between November and um, the following sort of March-April time of 2013, and again, a similar pattern seems to have happened between 2013 and 2014. Um, but these dogs are not necessarily greyhounds. They've encompassed a large number of different breeds of dogs. Um, and although the initial cases seem to be within the New Forest, um, subsequent cases have stemmed from a number of different counties within the UK. So Dorset, Cornwall, Worcestershire, Surrey, um, Yorkshire, Shropshire, Northamptonshire. So it really it isn't um, a location specific disease as far as we're aware at the moment and there's been some important work which is still ongoing with the Animal Health Trust in terms of trying to decide whether there mm. could be any kind of um, sort of distribution pattern across the country. Interesting and I, <coughs> you know sort of in preparation for this podcast actually I, I was looking um, and I think I'm right in saying that there was one case in County Antrim and there was one in Wales I think as a well. Absolutely so, so they're, they're coming from a variety of different places yeah. Um, so kind of with that in mind I guess one of the things I was uh, a little bit struggling with was what to call this podcast in a way and I, I sort of I guess I didn't feel entirely comfortable at the moment to call it Alabama rot um, with all the caveats of what you've just said already and maybe maybe that's okay I, I've sort of said Alabama rot like syndrome in dogs in the UK but I don't know what what do you think we should be we should be referring to this disorder as at the moment I mean, I, I think because we don't know what the etiology is, we have to go back to trying to call it a name that reflects the underlying pathology taking place. So I think when we're talking about it um, in um, information that we're giving between vets as ourselves, then I think we need to refer to it as the cutaneous renal glomerular vasculopathy because that's really just describing the disease entity. Mm. I don't think it's wrong, potentially, for us to call it mm. Alabama rot-like syndrome because we know that the pathology that they were seeing in those racing greyhounds is identical to what we've seen in the um, biopsy samples from dogs that have been affected in the UK but obviously um, I think it's better for us to, to term it after the pathology that we're seeing. And what about in the context of um, disseminating information to pet carers? Yeah I mean it's more catchy isn't it at the <laughs> end of the day to call it Alabama rot like syndrome. Um, people are picking up on it by um, searching for terms like the new forest so it's I think if we are trying to disseminate information it's important that we have those um, essentially catchphrases almost in there because that's what people um, will have learned, as you said at the beginning, from their mm. textbook differentials when they were at vet school. That's the term that was being used. But I think we have to be cautious about propagating that forward. Maybe at some point we will know what's caused this and then we'll come up with a different name again. But so I guess one of the worries is um, <clears throat> with the internet now is obviously that you know lay people will search a term like Alabama rot and it will take them to a whole bunch of information. Some of it may or may not be true yeah. and they may kind of end up jumping to conclusions or making assumptions that at the moment we're not sure necessarily apply to the UK, for example. So I, think, I guess it's, it is a difficult one, but clearly we need to um, give it some sort of name. And I know that um, I'm going to mention at the end when we talk about prevention, 
Um, but I know that, for example, there are sort of groups being set up on Facebook that are basically entitled Alabama Rot in whatever the region is, and so I think lay people are using that yeah, terminology. Absolutely. Uh, right wrongly. Yeah. Okay, cool. And um, just to reiterate, then, basically the cause of Alabama Rot, as it was described previously in the USA, remains unknown, and likewise the cause of this disorder that we're seeing in the UK remains unknown. Yeah, absolutely. At the moment, um, nothing definitive has been um, found in terms of a causing agent, yeah. And I know that um, that you and, and a variety of other people from across the, um, the RVC and other places have been involved in brainstorming sessions trying to, trying to figure out what... Um, I was in and out of such sessions because I was on, on clinics at the time, but um, there was a lot of discussion, wasn't there, about what the potential causes might be, but I think as far as I'm aware, we we're still in a place of not really being sure. We're not, and I guess at this point, uh, you know, I would mention um, David Walker, um, Anderson Moore's veterinary specialist, who has been, um, because of his location, um, saw a large number of the initial cases and has been heavily involved in trying to get together a working force of people to, to try and find out what could be going on. So, yeah, there's certainly been a number of investigations that have been performed to date trying to sort of tick off the list some of the more common um, ETI of acute kidney injury and make sure that we're not dealing with a sort of variant of something that we'd perhaps be more familiar with and that that doesn't seem to be the case yeah. um, and actually it's good that you mentioned uh, Dave because I, I was going to tip my hat to him as well um, because obviously as you say he has done um, he has been very proactive in trying to disseminate information and get people talking about this and gathering information um, I think the, uh, they have referred, I think it's about three cases now to us, which we'll come back to and discuss later on when we talk about the treatment. Um, but I guess one thing I did want to do is to just set the record straight because I think we had a, you know, it was sent around on email that there was reports in the media about potentially that feeding raw food to dogs may be implicated uh, in this disorder. And I guess my understanding at the moment is that we have no evidence to support that either the feeding of raw foods or any particular type of diet, brand, etc. has any link to this disorder? No, not at all. Um, so far, there is absolutely no link that's been made with raw diets um, or with any brand or any particular type of dog food um, or treat. Um, so, so no, there's, there's no known associations at the moment. And I guess, um, you know, the, the problem we have is, you know, we... Um, one of the things I think that we'll spend a lot of time discussing at the brainstorming sessions have been, you know, the difficulty in how one could go about trying to identify uh, causes of such a thing. And then also, you know, in terms of building up a, an evidence base of a number of cases in which said cause is found. I think it's a huge, it's a huge challenge, right, to try and get from where we are at the moment to identifying a cause and sort of validating it in enough cases, etc. Absolutely, and one of the difficulties is um, when we see the cases at a relatively late stage as well, we don't know whether any potential triggers are still going to be present at that point or whether there could have been exposure to something which is subsequently no longer present when we're getting around to doing our diagnostic tests. Mm. Um, another factor that may um, make things harder for us is that um, often access to um, tissues etc. comes at post-mortem, so at the very end stage of this particular disease process, which may make things more difficult as well. Yeah. Um, so I guess just to sort of re-remind the listeners, basically what we're saying is that these cases, they develop um, skin lesions initially, and then at some point in time, shortly after, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, they go on to develop signs of acute kidney injury. 
Um, so in terms of the initial skin lesions, um, are there reports about what these have tended to look like? Have there been any kind of consistent findings or descriptions? Yeah, so um, in our discussions with um, David Walker, um, the cases that have been confirmed so far have typically presented with... Um, skin lesions which range from just being small erythematous areas um, through to ulcerated or erosive lesions typically affecting um, below the elbow um, or below the stifle. Um, it may just be a solitary lesion or sometimes there can be more than one. There have been a, a smaller number of cases that have presented with more extensive lesions mm. um, so these can affect the entire limbs. Um, there have certainly been a couple of cases with lesions affecting the ventrum um, and several of the cases have had um, lesions affecting around the, the muzzle or the, or the lip um, mucocutaneous junctions as well. So um, the skin lesions can be very variable and they, they can look relatively mild. So um, again, we'll, we'll, um, I'll put you on the spot towards the end and ask you about what advice we're going to give people. But um, so basically we're saying that the there may be a sort of more classical presentation, if you could even say such a thing at this point about yeah. this disorder, but that it's really there can be a, quite a big variety of potential skin lesions that one might see. Yeah. Okay, and then in general, how soon after these skin lesions are first noticed um, do the dogs start to show signs of acute kidney injury? Well, the pattern for the confirmed cases some, seems to be anywhere between two to seven days after initial skin lesion is seen. And obviously there'll be some degree of variability depending on when that skin lesion's picked up, um, whether it's not picked up until the patient perhaps subsequently becomes unwell. Mm. What's proving difficult, obviously, is that not all cases have necessarily progressed to develop acute kin kidney injury and got to the point of us having renal tissue available mm. to make that diagnosis. So it's hard for us to say whether um, there is a spectrum of clinical presentations. Um, the information that we have about confirmed cases um, does suggest that there is this time period of between two to seven days where dogs progress from having potentially a solitary or multiple skin lesions through to being becoming lethargic, starting to vomit, going off their food, etc. And those dogs have subsequently been found to have acute kidney injury. Okay, and so the, the complexity is twofold, and I guess one is that we're saying that within this syndrome, some dogs will develop skin lesions but not go on to develop clinically manifested head, uh, acute kidney injury? I guess we don't know. That's the thing. And because those dogs are not necessarily getting that far and are not having biopsies, it may be that they are having some degree of renal impairment that yeah. we're not aware of yeah. but are self-recovering at that point. But without having histopathology, we can't truly classify those dogs as having that condition. Yeah, absolutely. I guess that was my other point also is that um, you know they may also be having skin lesions of completely something. Abs else. And I guess actually I wanted to... Um, it seems like a good time to to stress really that in terms of absolute numbers the number of dogs affected is actually very small and that you know most people in practice when they see dogs with skin lesions most of those skin lesions are not going to be because of this disorder and similarly the cases of acute kidney injury are also not necessarily going to be related to this disorder and I guess it's one of those things that and obviously we've seen firsthand that this syndrome is obviously very worrying and, and well has been devastating for the dogs and the families that it affects but in terms of the actual making sure that that people out in practice understand the true nature of the risk it's actually not 
in terms of absolute numbers, a very big risk, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think so far, in terms of confirmed cases, the latest update was 30, 31 confirmed cases with um, renal histopathology available. Um, if we think about the vast number of dogs that will develop a skin lesion, a cut, uh, uh, when they're out walking, for example, mm. then the sheer number um, of those in comparison to these 31 dogs is very is very small. Um, there are another group of dogs with suspected um, Alabama rot-like um, lesions with, which have not had histopathology performed to confirm the condition um, but have had clinical signs which were perhaps comparable. Mm. Um, so the numbers might be slightly larger. Um, yeah, and then I guess um, so. Anderson Moores are acting as the kind of I think the acting as the uh, the headquarters for the gathering of the, the data about cases. Um, but I guess we we don't know how many have not been reported to uh, them, as it were. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think until everybody out there is aware of this condition and is is looking out for it, and then you know we're very much trying to make sure that we do get uh, um, information from people who think they may have seen um, affected cases. Yeah. And I just, I guess, I should say to the listeners that if they want um, to keep up to date with the cases that have been reported, then if they go to the website of the uh, Forestry Commission, you can find um, that information on there, and I think it's being updated every two weeks at the moment, if I remember, if I remember correctly. Um, and the other thing is, I think that um, I'm not sure exactly, but I imagine Dave has got something to do with it. That they're in the process of writing a paper for publication, um, which I think will contain a lot of the information that they've collated so far, including histopath and you know clinical pathology results and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, we're definitely um, trying to get that publication Are you together. On that um, I'm certainly part of David's. Um, David Walker is one of is the lead author on that, but we're certainly trying to get that information out as as quickly as we can. And do you? Um, you probably don't know at the moment, but do you know which journal that's likely to be submitted to or not? No. Um, not at the moment, no. Okay. But because I guess from my point of view, one of the things that would be great would be to um, that might be the sort of paper that would be nice to make kind of freely available open access type of thing because in this sort of situation I think it would be um, very much so I think it's a publication which um, ought to go out to every practice available yeah yeah, yeah. okay um, good so I want to move on now and talk about the treatment um, and I guess if we start with the skin lesions then what kind of management has been indicated so far with these skin lesions I mean, I think um, the, certainly the skin lesions that we've seen, it's just been general wound management. Um, they've required making sure that they're clean, appropriate dressings. Um, if, they're, if it's required, then you might need systemic antibiotics. Um, but in, on the whole, um, most of the management of these cases is more focused around their acute kidney injury. Yeah, and I guess... Um I'm not aware, and if you are, of any cases where where the skin lesions have necessitated anything particularly invasive in terms of surgical debridement or anything like no, that. No, I'm I'm not aware of any um, cases that have required that. No. Although, as you said earlier, I mean, um, we certainly had one case, didn't we? And, and I know that um, David said in his experience that some of them can look, you know, really quite multiple diffuse type of lesions that can look quite problematic. Yeah. Um, but we haven't. I'm not aware of anyone having to go and do anything surgical to. No, no, I mean, the cases that have been to us have had the lesions biopsied as part of the diagnostic process, but no, they've not required any surgical intervention. Cool, and I guess um, on the, you know, in the context of the antibiotics then, um, I know with our last case that we'll talk about a bit later, um, 
we did deliberate a lot about whether leptospirosis might be involved in any way or that could be what we were seeing and, and nothing to do with this other disorder. And I guess in that situation, then those dogs, we typically put on an appropriate antibiotic for that anyway. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, I think... Um it's leptospirosis is a condition that um, we have to always think about when we have a patient coming in with acute kidney injury mm. and potentially raised liver um, parameters as well. So it's not unreasonable to have that on your differential list. Um, so far, um, all of the dogs that have gone through the thorough investigations have had leptospirosis serology performed and it um, has been negative. We've yeah. also, um, or Dave has also had um, fluorescent in situ hybridization performed of some of the kidneys from these dogs, um, specifically looking for okay. leptospira within the renal tissue, and that's been negative as well. Um, so it doesn't seem that leptospirosis is an underlying cause for these cases, but it is definitely something which everybody should be thinking about um, should they see a case of yeah and um <clears throat> like i think some of these cases have had thrombocytopenia as well haven't they and yep that's one of the typical um presenting um Klimpath findings yeah interesting um okay and then in the context of the acute kidney injury um i guess as far as i'm aware the management here is considered basically standard in terms of how we would approach any other case of acute kidney injury and i guess uh, you and I have recorded a podcast on chronic kidney disease that, that is still to be published, but um, I guess at some point we'll do one on acute kidney injury as well in more detail. But I wondered if you could just summarize here briefly for the listeners kind of how we go about approaching a case with acute kidney injury. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a massive topic, but I guess um, in summary, um, the important thing to start with is to recognise that you're concerned about ki acute kidney injury um, and having recognised that, um, we need to first of all think about making sure we have the kidneys adequately perfused. So if you've got a dehydrated or a hypovolemic patient, then you need to address that. But beyond that, we very much need to start thinking about monitoring urine output. We need to be matching ins and outs um, because overhydration in these patients patients um, can be a significant cause of morbidity. Um, so um, placement of urinary catheters if that's possible um, and then moving on to medical management if, if you're concerned that your patient's becoming oliguric or trending towards anuria and, and typically that will be furosemide um, either as bolus or COIs. Mm. Um, the cases I guess that we've seen unfortunately have already been in the anuric state by the time we've seen them. I guess I wanted to, uh, well, make one comment and ask you one question. So the comment I wanted to make, which I think is something that um, people can sometimes misunderstand, is that the use of diuretics in these patients mm. is not therapeutic in the sense of treating the cause. It's very much a, a management tool, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so I if you had a patient <clears throat> that was making adequate amounts of urine, they wouldn't necessarily need diuretics no. because they're not treating the disease per se. No, absolutely. We're, we're only really thinking about using the diuretics if you've got a patient that's becoming oliguric. And yeah. yeah. Um, and the other thing was that um, <clears throat> I know that we, uh, we sometimes you know, are looking at things to, to detect it earlier. But when you said, oh, if you're worried about acute kidney injury, so what are the things that are going to make a practitioner be worried that a patient has acute kidney injury? And I guess if you could tell us a little bit about the, um, 
the usefulness of those things in detecting the problem early on, that would be quite good. Yeah, I mean, it's very challenging with these cases because it's when do we start measuring renal parameters um, in, in an ideal world where we know that there might have been a potential insult to the kidney, then obviously looking for um, changes in your creatinine concentration and potentially looking at urine cast formation. There are some interesting biomarkers that are in development, but there's nothing on our laboratory panels really at the moment um, in addition to, to creatinine. So I think... Um, a serial assessment of creatinine, um, even if it's within normal limits to start with, if you're seeing a gradual day-by-day increase, then that's obviously something that's telling you that you might have a problem um, if you're happy that your patient is well hydrated. Yeah, and then um, <clears throat> I think that, um, you know, the, the end point of, you know, when you were saying that the patients that we've had here, um, at least two of the three were, you know, severely oliguric stroke anuric. Um, and basically the end point of that um, workflow is if you fail medical therapy, then you essentially have two choices, right? One is for the patient to be euthanized and the other is to attempt some form of renal replacement therapy or what I guess people in practice will be more familiar with the term dialysis. Yeah. Um, now, we know that in the UK at the moment, this is the only center that offers that therapy, at least um, apart from maybe there might be places doing peritoneal dialysis, and I'm not sure. We also know that in the, in the U.S. and in North Canada and in other places in Europe as well, there are other veterinary institutions that are potentially offering, offering this therapy. Now, the cases that have been referred to us from Anderson Moores were referred because they were basically worried that the severity of their acute kidney injury meant that those were patients that needed or were going to need renal replacement therapy. And in two of the cases, we did actually go on and perform that therapy. Um, now, I think it's my understanding, based on the evidence that we have available, that if a dog with this syndrome develops such severe acute kidney injury that they are severely oliguric or anuric and basically meet criteria for renal replacement therapy, then at, we're sort of working on the basis that we think at the moment that the prognosis at that point is very grave. Now, in the two cases that we did renal replacement therapy here, those patients were subsequently euthanized um, because basically they failed to show any evidence that their kidneys were going to recover in the time frame available. And I wanted to stress about this time frame thing being key in a way because I guess we don't know if those dogs could have recovered if we could have offered them more long-term renal replacement therapy, but that's not something that, that we do here. Um, so I guess the first thing is that seemed like a fair summary of where we're at in that, in that respect. But also, do you know if there are any patients that have had Alabama, Alabama rot in, in North America, for example, that have had sort of, you know, renal replacement therapy on a monthly basis or something and gone on to recover? Or do we not have that information at all? Um, I th Shannon, I think that's a reasonable summary of the two cases that we've had so far. So I think one of the dogs was on um, renal replacement therapy with us for about seven days, the other dog over a 10-day period, and there was no sign. Both dogs were aneuric, and there was no sign of improvement in their renal function at the end of that, that time period. And for a variety of reasons, um, euthanasia was felt to be the best course of action. And when those dogs had their kidneys examined, the lesions were incredibly extensive. Mm. Um, suggesting that it was most likely to be an irreversible disease process, I think, in those dogs. The difficulty, I guess, that we have is making a, a definitive decision that that's the process we're dealing with. Um, so I would still support potentially considering renal replacement therapy whilst we're um, prefer performing initial diagnostic mm. tests in patients because it allows us to st 
stabilise those dogs um, and to keep them more comfortable potentially um, and to prevent all of the um, electrolyte imbalances that have become life-threatening to a patient that's not able to produce urine and, and has kidney failure. Um, in terms of do I know of any cases in um, the states that have had long-term dialysis were well, not specifically relating to Alabama rot, um, there certainly are institutions in the states, um, for example, um, uh, UC Davis, University of California, Davis, where um, they do have intermittent dialysis therapy and they will treat patients on a chronic basis rather than what we're talking about, which is very much um, for the stabilization of an acute kidney injury patient whilst we're performing initial diagnostics, etc. And for some patients, that may be long enough for them to have some degree of um, return in renal function um but not all yeah and i guess you know we've discussed this in in other situations of acute kidney injury that what we don't typically have access to is that histopathological information whilst the patient is still being treated that might or might not help us to make decisions um, yeah and i think that's something which um as potentially we see further cases, we will be considering the pros and cons of performing that renal biopsy at an earlier time point in these cases. Yeah. And are those samples that need specialist examination? or Typically, we send them to um, the states for the WSAVA renal biopsy scheme, um, where we get a combination of light microscopy, electron microscopy, and immunofluorescence. I think there is the potential for the argument um, in these cases that we may be able to get a quicker turn around information uh, by also getting routine histopath um, just at your regular vets at pathology lab sorry okay and um the samples that we send off to the states do we have what well, do we have any idea of what the turnaround time would be for that not really um typically we're, we're getting um the initial results back within um a, a week um the electron microscopy and immunofluorescence takes a little bit longer because those samples need pr um, processing and, and and dealing with yeah okay. all right excellent um so then I guess with that sort of backdrop, the, the third case that we had referred to us, we, we actually performed an intervention known as plasmapheresis, and that dog, you know, coincidentally or otherwise, uh, did survive to discharge, and at this time, a few weeks down the line, is, is still doing okay at home. Um, I should stress that histopathology was not performed on the kidneys of that dog, and in that respect, she remains an unconfirmed, you know, a suspected but unconfirmed case. Um, and nevertheless, though, I did wonder if you could explain to the listeners, you know, what plasmapheresis is in basic terms and also what our thinking was behind offering it in that case. That would mm, be great. Sure. Um, so plasmapheresis is essentially plasma exchange. So we're taking the plasma um, out of the blood, essentially, and replacing it with clean plasma. Um, and we do that using the same machine that we have for continuous renal replacement therapy, but a, a, a different filter is used. Um, the rationale for trying that in the particular case that we saw was that the case was presenting in a very typical clinical manner. It had all of the um, commonly found clinical abnormalities that we were expecting. It had the typical skin lesions, and, and we had histopath actually on the skin lesions, which was supportive of the condition as well. Um, the rationale really comes from human medicine. 
there are um, a number of conditions where very similar histopathological findings um, have been identified in humans. Um, so that would be termed um, thrombotic microangiopathy, which is related either to um, hemolytic uremic syndrome, an atypical form of hemolytic uremic sy syndrome, or um, thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura. Um, and for those conditions, plasmapheresis um, is something that has been recommended. There are some newer agents out there that are also being used but which would be cost prohibitive um, in veterinary patients but that's where the rationale came from. Um, it's doesn't have um, incredibly strong evidence in human medicine but it is something that that is routinely performed. Um, so um, yes we have treated this single case and the dog did well. Um, but as you said, we cannot say one way or the other whether this dog would have improved clinically if we just carried on with medical management um, and treating the dog symptomatically as we would otherwise have done. Um, but I think it's something which we have available and we need to think about whether we would use so, again. So I guess, um, yeah, so I guess I wanted to reiterate your point there and also I guess to make the listeners aware that that, that dog, she wasn't actually um, severely oliguric and her urine output was actually perfectly acceptable. Her azotemia was worsening and we know that that has some extra morbidity associated yeah. with it. And we know that the, um, you know, from the point of view of reducing azotemia, then certainly those dogs do potentially feel better. But I guess with her, we weren't in as terrible a situation as the other two cases that we had in terms of her renal function. Um, but I guess the other thing is, so when you're saying about plasma exchange, I mean, what are we trying to... Why are we trying to remove the plasma from, and why are they trying to do that in humans? What is it they're trying to get out of those patients? So some of some of the conditions that I mentioned have derangements in complement activation, um, and some of those conditions it's a, a genetic predisposition. We have no evidence um, that this is the case in the dogs, um, but that would be the underlying rationale for us to be um, trying plasmapheresis on the basis of the human side. Um, I think we can also imagine that some of these dogs have um, a lot of vascular inflammatory mediators which we may also be removing through this process too um, yeah okay cool and um, so I guess just to reiterate the point that you've made already really is that although we are talking about this as a, a point of interest um, we obviously can't know whether this intervention did or did not help this patient and so far experience of using it in this disorder is n equals one which is basically no evidence based right so I guess I'm very clear about making sure that we don't leave listeners listening to this podcast thinking that we've just invented a therapy for the syndrome that we don't know the cause of because I, I think that would be very dangerous. I completely uh, agree and I was um, recently at a conference in the States um, uh, dealing just with acute kidney injury in veterinary patients and I asked a number of people in the States who have been doing dialysis for a protracted period of time mm -hmm. and plasmapheresis and, and they'd not they'd not come across um, treating these cases in, in this way. The Alabama they, rot ones? No. Um, obviously they were aware of it being a potential um, therapeutic intervention for this type of condition in human medicine um, but they're not cases that they see on a regular basis either so the cases which up until recently came across came along maybe you know once a year mm. possi possibly not even that frequently interesting because i know that we um, you know we had a lot of discussions didn't we everyone that was involved either yeah. centrally or peripherally with the case about the you know the rights and wrongs and, and the owner's feelings and all that kind of stuff so okay good and um the final thing i wanted to ask you is this basically so say i'm a vet in practice and for the purposes of this question i'm presented with a dog with a two centimeter skin erosion distal to the stifle 
on the right hind limb of unknown cause. What are you as the vet going to say to me as the carer of that dog about what you think I should do? I think the, th- the first thing to, is to do is to provide the owner with reassurance. If there's any uh, knowledge of how that skin lesion's occurred, then the chances are that it's not going to be relating to this condition. So if, if you know that it was a cut pad, for example, then we can probably dismiss it. But I think if you do have index of concern and you have a client that is very concerned, probably the sensible thing to do is to get baseline renal parameters at that point, which can subsequently be used as a baseline to see whether things are going to deteriorate over time and then the client really is just going to need to monitor their pet very closely Um, and I think if the the client does represent their dog um, and is concerned that they're unwell then absolutely we need to assess renal function at that point in time and if we are seeing signs of um, deteriorating renal function then we need to act quickly and, and consider what the best treatment options are at that point. The best treatment option. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> it's very depressing, it's a, actually. It is, yeah. Uh, um, because I guess that's, you know, we, we've talked, I think, in other contexts about this. Uh, you know, you, um, I suppose it's about, as you say, providing the owner with as much information in between you and the carer of that dog, deciding to perform blood tests, not to perform blood tests. Um, because, you know, again, we could leave people thinking, well, every dog with a skin lesion of unknown cause should have a, a, a renal panel done and we've already said that in terms of absolute numbers we're talking about a very small number of dogs and i think it's a really difficult one i guess what what would what would you do do you you have a dog i'm not sure if you do have a dog i don't have a dog (laughs) what would you do if you had your own dog um (laughs) that's a difficult question i I mean i think you can turn around and ask me uh, i've got a dog Do you, know, do you know, I think it's going to be the situation where nine times out of ten, or even less than that, 99 times out of 100, it's not going to be this condition at the moment. So the laws would, of averages would say that we should just monitor it. But, you know... I would be concerned as an owner, just as a lot of owners out there are concerned. Um, so I think if, if I hadn't had baseline renal values recently and I was worried and this lesion was progressive, because that's something else, I guess, which you can look out for, you know, is this lesion changing over time, uh, then I would probably end up getting baseline renal values on my dog. And, um, you know, it's a different context, but one of the, one of the things we see, you know, that um, is nephrotoxic to dogs are, are grapes and raisins and so on, and we don't know much about why that occurs mm. at the moment and we we recommend in those contexts um at least i recommend in those contexts to admit those dogs for iv fluid therapy mm. and i suppose if you draw a correlation to this syndrome if we're saying where well, your dog has a skin lesion and we don't know why and therefore you think that they have been exposed to whatever it is the cause in the similar way to the Grayson Raisin story, I mean, are we saying that there's an argument here that fluid therapy may in some way reduce the severity of the acute kidney injury and maybe we should be admitting these dogs for IV fluids? I'm, just, I'm sort of thinking on my feet here in a way, but actually just when you were talking, I was thinking, well... I think I the bottom line is we just don't know. Mm. Um, and I think it's it's a very hard judgment call to say, are you going to admit every dog that has a skin lesion and put them on fluids for a period of time? I, I don't think we can probably go around uh, advocating that for every dog. Um, but I think definitely if you've got a dog that presents with a skin lesion, which 24, 48 hours later, you are worried that that dog is not as well as it should be and let's be honest with a small skin lesion it shouldn't really be affecting that dog's Mm. um, attitude and activity levels um, you know providing it's it's not a 
infected wound etc then if that dog's unwell I would be starting to get very worried and at that point I probably would be thinking about getting them in and getting them on, on some fluids um, yeah so owners need to be very vigilant um, yeah, and I guess absolutely. you know arranging to to re-examine repeat the bloods after 24, 48 hours, and maybe serially. If they're worried that the, the dog's not clinically doing as well as it should be. Uh, it's tricky, not It is tricky. <laughs> um, and are there any other differentials that, that we can think of for a dog that develops skin lesions initially and then acute kidney injury? No, I mean, I think this is one of the slight, uh, slight things that sort of differentiates these cases is that really, of all the other causes of acute kin- kidney injury, we don't typically think of skin lesions being part of the pattern. So um, yeah. no, it, it's novel to this condition, really. Because I, I know that with our last case, um, you know, we were thinking about all kinds, because that dog actually had some other findings on abdominal ultrasound, for example, and stuff that weren't, you know, typical, if I can say such a thing. <laughs> Um, but what we kept coming back to with her was basically, well, yes, but your skin lesions were the thing that started first and everything else yeah. has followed on from there. And yeah. that seems to be a, and we yeah. can really fit that to other scenarios that, that kind of made, we came up with some imaginative ideas, but yeah. nothing that really fitted. Um, okay. And then obviously without knowing the cause of this disorder, it's impossible basically to give, um, pet carers kind of robust advice about prevention i know for example that in areas in which um there have been several dogs reportedly affected that some people are putting up posters and setting up facebook groups for example to try and warn people to avoid walking their dogs in certain areas and i know that for example um one of my friends had posted that she was going to visit new forest with a friend and walk a dog there and there was this tirade of comments on Facebook basically saying don't do that Uh, because obviously a lot of us are vets or vet nurses or whatever Um, but I guess the thing is that we we don't know that the cause is we don't even know that the cause is an environmental exposure right and so what benefit not walking your dog in a particular area has or not essentially remains unclear is that is that your understanding Uh, yeah absolutely and unfortunately or fortunately because there have been so few cases it's very difficult to put any kind of geographic distribution um, on this condition so um, as we said right at the beginning the cases have come from across the country um, the ori- original association with the new forest um, certainly doesn't hold true anymore um, so I think it's very difficult to say that you should limit um, the areas that you're walking your dog in um, just on the basis that there's been one dog potentially in the area that has been affected um, yeah yeah all right. Um, thank you very much. Um, so, again, as always, thank you for your time. And obviously, this has been quite a long, a long podcast. But um, as we discussed before we started, I think it's important that we cover this disorder and I guess try and get as much information out to vets and nurses in practice, um, because we, we both know that there has been a fair amount of media, uh, both veterinary media and non-veterinary media interest, um, and also on the internet as well. There's a fair amount of stuff going around about. Um, about this. Um, was there anything else that you felt that we hadn't commented on or do you think we've covered everything that we needed to say today? No, I think we've I think we've given a reasonable summary of everything that's been that we know or more likely what we don't know about this condition which is the the biggest issue and I guess um, we are still trying to um, investigate um, the underlying e- potential etiologies um, and I think 
I think I'd just encourage people to be aware of the condition and um, to make sure that any confirmed or suspected cases are reported um, because that information can be important. There are questionnaires available and there would be links through um, the Anderson Wars website to get to all of those. Um, yeah. yeah, that's true. And what I'll do is um, we're going to try and publish this podcast this week and I'll put some links to where people can get the questionnaire and, and I guess to the Forestry Commission's website as well um, on there. And I was thinking also that um, I guess if we do uncover more about this, then we may be returning to do little wee short podcasts about um, updates for the listeners. Um, okay, thanks so much, Roseanne. And to the listeners, as always, then do feel free uh, to get in touch and provide your feedback in the usual ways. Um, so you can email me directly at schassani at rvc.ac.uk. You can use the Royal Veterinary College's Facebook page uh, where there's an album that contains information about the podcast and also links to the podcast. Um, or you can tweet at Royal Veterinary College using the hashtag SAClinPod. And until next time, then, do take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.